for thousands of years. We're just starting at verse 1 and going to verse 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? And the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more. That nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Would you bow your heads and pray with me, please? Father, as we read these last words of Jesus in this section, it is amazing to think of the weight of calling you Father as we pray. And that this is what Jesus has brought us up into as his church. We are now a part of the family of God and are able to call you Father. We're not claiming equality with you. We're not claiming any kind of special privilege. We're just simply claiming that we belong to you. That you who have created us have also redeemed us by the blood of Christ. And have healed us in Christ. Lord, as we look at this passage and consider our hope and consider your mercy... Would you speak these same words to us, to each individual heart? Do you want to be healed? Help us to examine ourselves to see if that's something we really want, if we really want all that you have for us. Or if perhaps we're looking for something else, looking for a different source. Perhaps we've lost all hope. We speak to our hearts. Fix our hope on Christ. And grant your spirit that all these things might be done for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title this morning is just taken simply from Jesus' question to the invalid at the pool for 38 years. Do you want to be healed? And for the sake of jumping immediately to application, this is a question we do need to ask ourselves. And, and it's a very simple one if we think of our life before Christ, isn't it? Because we can interpret this and say, do you want to be healed? Do I want all things that Christ has for me? Uh... Yeah, I mean, if we're professing believers in Christ, then we have said yes to this question already. Is it then worthwhile for us to consider it yet again? If it hasn't been made totally clear yet, my hope in any preaching instance is to remind us of our need for the gospel. 
that is the kernel, that is the, the core truth of what every passage is trying to get to. And so if we need to be reminded of the gospel, questions like these will be helpful to us, will they not? As we consider all that we have in him. Now the call of this passage is very unique because as we look at it, we may be thinking, okay, this guy has a very different life situation than really any of us in this room right now, right? I mean, first of all, we're separated by time. We're also separated by distance and we're separated by physical health and, and largely, right? This man couldn't even walk for 38 years. So if we look at the question that Jesus asks him, it's very simple for us to see what he's talking about. Hey, your legs don't work. Do you want to be healed? Of course he does. Why else is he there? What else would he be looking for? It's important for us as we read the Gospel of John, as it is in any part of Scripture, to be mindful that these stories are organized and put together not just by John the Apostle, but by the Holy Spirit working through him. So it is necessary for us today, I would say, to consider this story. And if you need further reason for that, consider at the beginning here, as Jesus comes up to Jerusalem, and we get some background there, which we'll cover in a second. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he asked that question. In the midst of a multitude of people who needed healed, he came to one specific individual. He did not step into that place and say, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, who wants the real healing? He had a particular plan for how this was going to work out. And, and if you observed at the end of what his response is to this, it's kind of questionable. You might ask Jesus, why? I mean, you knew this was going to happen. We even get this notion here. Jesus saw him, and he knew that he had been there a long time. This is before he asked him anything else. This was not uh, Jesus doing some background information on all the people that were out by the pool. This is Jesus exercising his divine right to all knowledge. And he does this in the life of this man just as well as he does it in our lives today. So if the call this morning could be put into words, it perhaps needs to be that we are being called to maintain our hope in Christ as we pursue him rather than anything else. If we put Christ first in our hearts and minds and lives, we're called to maintain our hope and you see, this is the desperate need of this man sitting by the pool. How long was he there? 38 years. It's longer than I've been alive, not by much. But to imagine a lifetime of need in this, this extreme circumstance. Jesus has seen him here and sees a complete lack of hope. It's not easy for us to obey this call to maintain our hope in Christ as we pursue him. It's not easy for us, and it certainly hasn't been easy for the people that we've seen Jesus interact with so far. We need to ask ourselves, how are we maintaining our hope in Christ today? But we can also learn a lot about that as we have seen so far with Nicodemus, with the woman of Samaria at the well, with the official who needed his son healed two weeks ago that we looked at. And you notice with each of those conversations, Jesus brings up a key question like this one today. He tells, or a question or statement rather, with Nicodemus, he tells him, you must be born again. With the woman at the well, he says, 
If you would have known who was asking you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. With the official who needed his son healed, he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Each one of these conversations and the one included today includes some statement or question particularly by Jesus that is immediately misunderstood by the recipient. And I wonder as you think back on your exposure to God's word, your exposure to the gospel, to the truth of God, did your hope depend on your immediate understanding? Or did your hope depend on something else? Did it depend on the one who was speaking to you or on your ability to see clearly what he was saying? Because for these people thus far, we have seen dramatic change. Nicodemus, maybe, maybe not yet, but spoiler alert, there's, there's some proof later on in the Gospel of John. With the woman at the well, we saw her immediately become a missionary in the day she believed. We saw the official, in the same sense, walk by a deeper faith that didn't need signs and wonders to verify what he believed, but could simply trust that word, whether he fully understood it or not. He went home, and on his way home, his servants came and said, hey, your son was healed. He realized that his son was healed at the same hour that Jesus had said, go on your way, your son will be made well. So these difficult sayings of Jesus, these uh, strange or surprising questions that he asks are not followed by, oh, hey, I get it, and so therefore now I can live it, but rather these questions bring life into the person. They bring a renewed hope, and they bring a reason to pursue Christ more than other things. This man was sitting at a pool in the city of Jerusalem that he believed, or many believed, was actually stirred up by an angel at various times. This is a really tricky thing. If you noticed in your Bible, if you're looking at the verses, there was a verse missing. Did you notice that? If you have a modern, if you have the King James Version, I guess you're, you're just right by default. For <laughs> just kidding. Um, why is, what verse is missing? Did you notice? Four, right? Verse four is missing. Why? Anybody know? Do you have notes? Look at the bottom of your Bible. This is something that has to do with text criticism. And this is one of, the most difficult things as we consider Scripture because we don't have the original Gospel of John, right? We have early, early copies of the Gospel of John. And so in text criticism, as scholars and Bible translators put the Bible together, they are actually looking at the most faithful and the oldest manuscripts. So there are some old manuscripts that include verse 4, but our oldest and most faithful manuscripts do not include verse 4. And so many modern translations will leave it out, but most often they put a note at the bottom to say, hey, by the way, there is a verse 4. We're just not entirely sure whether it belongs here or not. Whether it belongs in the passage, particularly as you think about other places where you see this, you're not going to find major scriptures being intentionally removed by modern translations for the sake of avoiding doctrines. Okay, that's, that's, that's one thing that you hear a lot is like, well, you know, I have to read this translation as opposed to that one because it doesn't include some of these verses. Well, when it comes to the scholastic elements here, uh, we do need to take into consideration what our oldest and best manuscripts say. Um, Our oldest and best manuscripts could potentially be wrong in leaving those out, but it just doesn't seem so. Again, those verses, like this one, it's not including anything that has to do with salvation or the deity of Christ or some of our cardinal doctrines, the things that we hold tightest to as our, our most necessary to believe. 
but it does give us some background into what the understanding of the day was. So there was an understanding, there was a belief by many and certainly by the multitude that was at the pool at Bethesda that at some point an angel would come and stir up the water and that whoever came to the water first would be healed. But then that would be it. The water would stop stirring and no one else would be able to be healed. Now, I struggled with this this past week because I read a lot of commentaries and it seemed like every time I opened up a new commentary, there was a new perspective added. There's thoughts of pagan influence in this and that perhaps it wasn't so much about an angel as it was more so about um, some other Roman uh, theological beliefs outside of Jerusalem that had made their way into Jerusalem and it affected how people saw this pool. Um, There's also just some very practical understandings too that perhaps um, this this pool was sitting on top of a subterranean um, river that it was flowing and that you know moving water underneath would come and bubble up at the surface and people believed there were healed. There might have been a rich mineral source there. There's all sorts of things to think about here. But primarily what we see and why we can, I think, comfortably say that that verse 4, the content of verse 4, is, is secondary to what's going on here is because Jesus does that, doesn't he? Because he's not ultimately saying in his question to the man, would you be put into the pool? He's saying, do you want to be healed? If you watch the second season of The Chosen, they've um, already tackled this scene, and I think they did a really good job with it. Um, But I I love, so naturally, as you're doing a TV show, you, you expand some of the conversation, right? This is not their attempt to add to scripture. This is just... an educated guess of how things might have went. And when Jesus comes to the man and says, do you want to be healed? Or rather, when he starts talking to him, the man actually says, are are you going to put me in the pool? You can see on the actor's face, he does a really good job of this. The hope just wells up in him. Are you going to bring me to the pool? Are you going to help me get there before anyone else can beat me there? And Jesus says, nope, that's not what I'm going to do. And you can almost kind of see him go, seriously, man, what are you doing here? Why are you bothering me? Why are you talking to me? So there's this mysterious element around the pool that that this man and that a multitude of other invalids, those blind, lame, and having other ailments, are putting their hope into. But clearly, that pool cannot handle the multitude and the multitude beyond who had given up hope entirely and aren't even there. That pool cannot handle the multitude of need that is represented around it. By the way, also, you mentioned, John mentions here um, roofed colonnades. So these are columns that are holding up roofs above the area. He also mentions that this was by the Sheep Gate. And our best understanding of why it's labeled the Sheep Gate is because that perhaps was where um, sheep that were being brought in for what purpose? To the temple? Sacrifice, right? So that's most likely what the Sheep Gate is all about. So the sacrifices would enter in there. But this man has been here for 38 years, been there hoping and hoping until finally he seemed to have none left at all. He's not alone. There's a multitude of people around him. I just wonder if you would imagine for a second with me if we had a Sunday where people who had a deep, real, evident, obvious need would flock into this church. What would we even do? How would we respond? We would perhaps feel um, a lot like perhaps the religious leaders around this pool, kind of wondering, I don't know what to do about this. There's nothing in scripture about how to deal with an angel stirring up the water, if that's what was actually going on or not. 
The reality is that like this multitude of invalids, we have a spiritual need that runs deeper than any physical ailments that we might experience day by day. Though those things are things that Christ wants to deal with, he wants to maintain your hope in the midst of whatever physical ailments or challenges you face. He cares about you. That's why the question is, do you want to be healed? Jesus' question is surprising, but it is also necessary. Why would Jesus not ask it if it wasn't necessary? We might think perhaps that it was clearly obvious. What else does this man want? He's here for healing. He's not here just to watch and has nothing else to do, thinking, I don't think I'll ever get there or I don't want to even try. We, we get from his response, like, hey, every time I try to go to the pool, somebody beats me to it. Well, why? Well, because I can't walk. He's pulling himself by his hands on the ground trying to get there. Can you imagine the desperate situation of this guy? Anytime the water was stirred up and the crowd started moving immediately as fast as they all could to the pool. I mean, do you have any hope at all as you see people running past you? Maybe if I try really hard, I can pull myself across the floor and get there before the guy who is sprinting. Is there any hope like that at all for this man? No. His hope ran out a long time ago. This was not you know, the, the last day of his real hope and Jesus shows up just as he's finally given up. I imagine that for 38 years, he sat in utter hopelessness. Jesus knows the true depth of our need. He knows the true depth of your hopelessness today. He doesn't ask, will you be put in the pool? He asks, do you want to be healed? And so enters our conflict because in the man's response, we see an obstacle and an alternative that he's looking for. Every time I try to get into the pool, that's the alternative, the alternative to trusting in Christ in this moment. Every time I try to get into the pool to get myself healed, an obstacle appears. People. There's another alternative as well. I have no one to put me into the pool. I have no one. Every time I try to go, somebody else gets ahead of me. It's hard when you read dialogue in the Bible to not read into it a tone isn't it? I think maybe as you heard me read it, you might have even heard uh, my struggle to try to, you know, understand how best to, to read this out loud. Because my inclination, when Jesus says, do you want to be healed, is to imagine the sick man saying, are you kidding me right now? Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. How in the world do you think? What, why are you asking me if I want to be healed? Of course I want to be healed. The problem is not whether I want to. The problem is I can't get there. And Jesus clearly says, in fact, the problem is whether you really want to. If your will is truly lined up with mine or not, regardless of the obstacles and alternatives that you might see. The content of his response boils down to this. There is no mercy. Does anybody know what Bethesda means? You might guess from the last word I said. It's a house of mercy. And this man's whole life experience for 38 years, whether he was literally at the pool 24-7 or was taken back and forth by some friend who wasn't willing to help him any further, his whole experience of this is that there is no mercy. There is no one merciful enough to carry me to the pool when it bubbles, and there is no one merciful enough to say, that guy looks like he needs it more than I do. There is no mercy. That is 
the content of his response. The stature of, of his response, again, is kind of difficult to find, but you might simply label it as him questioning, why are you really asking me this? I've given up all hope on finding mercy. He doesn't truly give an answer, do you want to be healed, because the answer he thinks should be obvious, although it is not. And for us today, we also need to realize in our own hearts that there may be something that God is offering us today that we might think with our, our words, rather, we might speak with our words or, or, or think is obvious that, yes, we want whatever God has for us, but do we actually want what God has for us? Do we want things like persecution and tribulation? Do we want the life that Jesus lived? You know, the disciples followed him for three years and they all gave up on him when what happened? He was arrested. And when he was arrested, they knew exactly what was going to happen after that. Because Jesus had mentioned it. Because the Pharisees had made it evident. They wanted to kill him. And Jesus is the Savior who comes to his people and says, if anyone's going to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That's part of what God has for you. The wonderful plan for your life. Taking up a cross. Following Jesus. The disciples, the 12 particularly, that were with him that night he was arrested, could not follow him. And on our own, we cannot either. We will immediately lose hope if we, by our own natural eyes, look to Christ and say, that doesn't fit with what I'm actually looking for. I want people to be merciful to me, to my needs, to my desire for how those needs should be met. All the while, Christ has an even greater mercy than the one we have manufactured in our own minds and in our lives. So what in your life can replace this last word? Maybe healing is something that you just want. Maybe you just say, yeah, there's this physical problem I'm facing, health issue, that I just want to be healed. But perhaps there's something else. Do you really want blank? Do you really want godliness? Do you really want success against sin in your life? Do you really want to be the person that God has made you to be? Because it's not going to be easy and it's not going to look like what we might initially think of. Perhaps we imagine that we don't deserve or we cannot earn what God has for us, so we don't want it. It's certainly a matter of whether it's something that we want it to be, that being what God has for us. Put me into the pool was what this man wanted. Jesus did not offer to do that for him. Could it also be that because of what that would mean for our wounds that we've been nursing for so long, those, those things, that, those hurts that we have, that we say this is, this is kind of like nobody says to themselves or to others, you know, I really love to just mourn this thing in my past or this thing that's going on, but there's something in us, in our, in our sinful hearts, that relishes the opportunity for a pity party, Right? That, that it's not just a matter of like, I just can't hold back the tears anymore. But there are times where our hearts just say, you know what? I just really want to dive deep into my sorrow and, and feel the depth of that and make it very evident to God how disappointed I am with him and how my life has ended up. These all sound like very mean statements and mean attitudes to the Savior that we love but they are a very real and present danger, if not the reality for some in our hearts and minds throughout the week. Do you actually want what Christ has for you? Or are you letting the obstacles or alternatives 
get in the way of that and say, you know, I really can't do all the things that I know I want to be a part of as a Christian until this thing is sorted out. This obstacle's in my way. Or have an alternative. There's, there's a better way. I mean, I mean, it might even just kind of look like I don't really need to go to church because I can watch it on Facebook. And if, if Crosspoint stops doing it, then I can just watch some other church, right? And it's not to say that church attendance is the paramount, obvious fact of your salvation or your holiness, but it's a helpful illustration, I think, as we consider alternatives, as we consider pools that we might say, I want to plunge myself into that pool where I can, I can find in my own comfort the healing that I think I really need. I make an idol out of my weakness. I make an idol out of my trouble. And I actually sometimes bow down to it and worship it rather than Christ. So do you want what Christ has for you? Are those obstacles and alternatives in the way, giving you excuses to walk away from it, or what? Now, if you look far down, we're jumping back and forth a little bit here. Verse 14, after Jesus has healed him, after we have the Sabbath issue, you see Jesus come back to the man and say, look, you've been made well. And then what does he tell him to do? Make sure you keep your legs strong, exercise every day, eat enough green foods, and does he say all that kind of stuff? No, clearly, though Jesus knew that this man wanted to be healed and that he wanted that physical healing, there was some deeper issue there, and it was his sin. Now, this is where it gets really, really tricky because there are things in Scripture, particularly as we think about communion, that can lead us to understand, rightly, I think, that there are some cases where sin can result in physical ailment. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that there are some of us, some in the church rather in Corinth, that have taken from the table of communion with a wrong attitude and that that is why many of you are sick and he says that is why many of you have even fallen asleep. That there is actual evidence that sin can lead to some kind of physical ailment or, or discipline for God's people. In this case, this was a question for us as we look at what Jesus is saying to this young, this man, at least 38 years into this. Commentators back and forth on this, of course. But there's at least a possibility that the reality of his ailment, the reality of his, his life as it was, had something to do with his sin at some point earlier on. It's possible. We don't know definitively for sure. What we do know is that Christ is not saying, let me give you all the good tips to make sure that you stay well and healthy and able to skip up and down the roads of Jerusalem for the next few weeks. He's saying, here is your deeper need. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Whether that be, hey, you might end up invalid again, or certainly that if this person lives his own life looking for his own alternatives, bowing to his own obstacles, putting his hope in other things and in himself primarily, he would face an eternity of separation from God because of his sin. What could that worst thing be? It could be all sorts of things in life right now, but it most certainly would be if we continue in unrepented sin, it will be eternal separation and judgment from God forever. That's really scary. But it is what Christ has come to undo. He came to absorb all of that for us. When he says sin no more, he says it with the power of, I'm going to take care of your sin behind that. That sin that has held us down, that has crushed our hope for mercy, 
and is ultimately seeking to destroy us. Christ, our wonderful, merciful Savior, has shown empowering pity for us in our desperate needs, and he grants us true hope in him. A great passage that came to mind this week, Isaiah 42.3, you might know it. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Isn't it incredible that knowing the sinful heart and the sinful status of every person apart from Christ, that Jesus doesn't come to this man and say, you have a sin problem, you need to figure this out. He doesn't just immediately heap judgment on this guy. He offers him healing. This is is kind of contrary to how we understand evangelism sometimes, right? But we need to let people know what the, the illness is before we know about the cure. So, so we shouldn't just go around offering, hey, Jesus died for your sins, because people may not even know what that means. And there's some truth to that. But as Jesus comes and starts to transform a heart, he's actually doing so by winning him over in his compassion. Winning him over by showing him the mercy that the house of mercy couldn't show him. This man was surrounded by people who had no mercy for him. No one willing to help him. No one willing to say, I'd really like to get healed, but you know what? You go on ahead first. Jesus is the one who set his health and his well-being aside for this man, and he has done it for you as well. He is the one who has said, hey, I will step aside, but not just in the sense of avoiding uh, or, or missing out, rather, on a healing so that someone else can, but I'm going to step aside and absorb all the wrath of God for this person's sins so that they can be made whole and made truly well. Do you want to be healed has a far deeper context than what this man imagined when he first heard those words. What did Jesus do for this man? In his words of mercy, he reversed 38 years of helplessness. He didn't suddenly say, hey, look, you can stand on your own two feet now. Go live a life that's pleasing to God. Figure out how to do it. He doesn't say that. He empowers him by his words. In his very words, he is actually giving the power to do what this man could never do. If anyone else came up to this man and said, hey, take up your bed and walk. He would probably spit in their face. Who do you think you are? That is like the meanest thing that could be done to somebody who is in such desperate need to just tell them, get up and come on, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Figure it out. You can do it. You just got to believe in yourself. No. When Christ speaks saving words into the lives of his people, He speaks that power to save in the midst of that. And we are in this mysterious way participating, not in providing, not in contributing, but in enacting what God is calling us to do. We know that we have to repent in order to believe, to to walk with Christ, to be forgiven, right? We need to repent of our sins and believe in Christ, turn to him for salvation, well, you can't do that on your own. Do you remember the dry bones of Ezekiel 37? When, when God takes Ezekiel to this desert and, and his vision and there's these dry bones all around and God asks this question, son of man, well, can these bones live? And Ezekiel gives the exact right answer, doesn't he? He says, um, Lord, you know. And subcontext, I imagine, being him saying, well, they're, they're bones. Uh, they can't breathe. They can't move. They can't do anything on their own at all. But I know that God is greater even than these dry bones. His ability is greater than their inability. So my answer is, Lord, you know. 
And so what happens? He tells Ezekiel to prophesy to the bones. And what do they do? They, they receive power by the word of God to live and to breathe and to walk and to obey. And that is what Christ has done for us. At the deepest level, dealing with our sin, making us new so that we can walk in that freedom and walk in that healing. So that we can walk with that sincere hope because his mercy has been poured out abundantly on us. I mean, oh my goodness, how often, and I'm not pointing fingers here because I do the same thing. I wake up and I say, Lord, help my kids to feel better. Lord, help this, the, the car to work. Lord, help the house to work. Help, help this. You know, focus on all these things, and they're not bad things to ask the Lord about. But sometimes we ask for these things without any kind of hope. And it's because we're not considering the depth of what Christ has already done for us. The depth of mercy that he's displayed to us, that is. That if my sins are forgiven, and that there is never a point in eternity where God is going to say, after a hundred million billion years, there's never a point in eternity where he's going to look at me and say, Nick, I'm done with you. I just, just get out. I don't know why I've had you here this long. God's heart for his people will never, ever change. And we have that kind of hope, knowing that what Christ has done for us on the cross extends beyond eternity when it comes to praying for the house, praying for the kids, praying for the friend, praying for all those things. We pray with a sincere hope. Christ has been so merciful to us. Of course we can ask him these things. And of course, when things don't work out the way we'd like them to, when he doesn't pick us up and put us in the pool, we can trust that he's working in an even better way. Because when you see him face to face, none of his people will ever look at God and say, hey, thanks for bringing me here. This is really great, but I really wish you would have handled that thing differently. What we will do is stand in awe at how God has dealt with all the things that needed healed in our lives and how he has done it perfectly in spite of ourselves, in spite of our sin, in spite of our wrong requests, in spite of our chasing alternatives and our bowing down to obstacles. His mercy is covered far beyond and that is what we will rejoice in for all of eternity. We need to repent of our forgetfulness of the gospel. Listen to Titus 3, 4 through 7. Paul writes to him, But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, of God our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. He is the true Bethesda, the true house of mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might, be become, might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Are you walking in your inheritance? Your inheritance is the hope of eternal life, church. You can walk in that today when your car breaks down, when things go wrong, whatever that thing might be that's on your mind right now that you say, I don't know if I can stay for the fall festival unless this thing gets handled. You can trust it with him. He's poured out the Holy Spirit on us when we were trying to plunge ourselves in some other option besides Christ. So we need to repent like this man, to turn from the pool and from other people to the Savior, to the one who can truly heal us, and to walk in that repentance. Remember, John the Baptist's message was to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, not just a one-time thing where we say, I'm going to turn away from my sin and turn to Christ. If it was that easy, we would never have to deal with sin ever again. We'd just be walking with Christ continually. But John says to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so we must. Now we come to this matter of the Sabbath. We're going to breeze through this because the next section deals very heavily with the authority of Christ as the Son. So if it feels like we're just wrapping things up really quickly, that is all by design. 
verses 9 through 13, that second part, then deals with the context of all of this. And at once the man was healed, he took up his bed and walked, and that day was the Sabbath. Bum, bum, bum. Oh, no, Jesus, you forgot something. It's the Sabbath. That's going to make some people angry. Aren't you a little bit worried about that? Weren't you trying to, to get in with the Pharisees in an okay place where, where maybe you could expand your ministry, right? Because people listen to the Pharisees. Oh my goodness, these 12 bozos that are fishermen and carpenters and tax collectors and zealots, exchange all those guys, get the Pharisees converted. They know their Bible way better than those bozos do. Get them on your side. Is that what Jesus is worried about? Of course not. And it is made clear to us because Jesus is not unaware of when the Sabbath is. We see exactly who the true bozos are when we come to the Pharisees. The Pharisees and this man at the pool have both missed something of the power of the word of Christ and the power of the work of Christ combined together. But when these Pharisees come and see what has happened, they say to the man, it is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Can you imagine that being your first response to this guy who's been healed after 30 years of being lame? You don't stand there and go, what? You couldn't walk and now you... What happened? Wouldn't that be your natural response? These Pharisees are so wrapped up in their own alternatives that they miss the work of God completely. You should not be carrying your bed. It's the Sabbath. We might, we might look at this and say, well, you know, perhaps he wasn't supposed to be carrying his bed. You know, is that what's going on? No, they're not referring at all to anything in Scripture. They're referring to their own pharisaical writings, their own law that they've contrived based on the Bible, wrongly, however, to say you shouldn't be carrying your bed on the Sabbath, even if you've just been healed and you never need to go to that pool again. They would have been happier to find him sitting at the pool on his bed and saying, hey, I'm going to get up tomorrow and leave. That would have been more impressive to them. And that is exactly how cold and how far these Pharisees were from understanding the word and work of God is made clear in Christ. And so we see verses 16 through 18 that because he did these things on the Sabbath, they were seeking to persecute Jesus. This is the turning point for the rest of the gospel here. Now, it's one of them, of course, but this is where suddenly we see opposition clearly defined. They are persecuting him because he's done these things on the Sabbath. They're ready to try to harm this guy, not just for the sake of getting the truth out, but to ultimately destroy him. That's what they want to do. You see that in the end here as well. Verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more, not just to persecute, but to kill him. Because he wasn't only breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. I listened to a, a Muslim um, it was an interesting, it was a Muslim Q&A this past week. And I, I listened to a Muslim teacher very skillfully go through and recite our Bible better than I could. I was embarrassed. But he recited the scriptures of the New Testament to explain away the notion that Jesus is, that, to say rather that Jesus is not equal with God. And then we come across a passage like this. Do you think that if Jesus knew that the Pharisees thought he was making a claim to be equal with God, do you think that if he wasn't trying to claim that, that he would just let that float? Of course not. And if he would, he would not be a person for any of us to honor. Certainly the Muslims who, uh, many of them say, no, we do honor Jesus. We just go beyond that and go to the next thing. But we acknowledge what Jesus has done in, in this part of redemptive history. Well, if he lets something like this sit in the minds of the Bible teachers of the day, that he might be equal with God when he's not. He would have to do something about it. 
And he doesn't. Because he is. Because his work is inextricably, (laughs) it is unable to be removed from the work of God, his Father. Look at his response about the Sabbath. He says in verse 17, My Father is working until now, from creation all the way to today, and I am working. What is his motivation for working mercy in the lives of his people, for restoring hope? The Father has sent him to do that, and that's what the Father is doing. The Father and the Son working perfectly together. What a great illustration for us to consider as we go out to do ministry in our neighborhood now, in our parking lot in a few minutes. To be the body of Christ working together. And we're not going to look like we're doing it perfectly, and that's okay. But spiritually, what the Father and the Son see is going to be their work in us to make us more like Christ. To be unified. And it's going to be amazing when we finally are able to pull back the curtain and truly understand that. Well, since Christ has done this great thing, since he has made it very clear who he is and the source of his mercy being in himself equal with God, we have to now walk out our lives testifying to the mercy that we've received. We can't help it. Every single person we've looked at has done this very thing. When they've met Jesus and been transformed, they have naturally inevitably become missionaries, become testifiers to the grace that they've received. You can't not do it. And I think that our problem as believers is not that we haven't figured out the best way to do it. And and I also think it's not necessarily that we haven't spent months and months repenting of our wrong hearts. I think it's a matter of understanding that this is actually what we're made to do. And when we live according to how we are made we're going to naturally testify. That's going to be the natural outpouring of this. When we think deeply on the mercy that we've received, that we repent of our forgetfulness and realize Christ has shown us mercy, has shown us mercy deeper than what we could ever possibly imagine, we can walk in a life that is faithful to that testimony. Now, it's interesting because this man doesn't seem to do a very good job, does he? Look at verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Well, why did you do that? You already talked to the Pharisees. They already asked you who healed you, and you didn't know. Couldn't you tell, tell that the Pharisees were angry? Doesn't it make sense for you to not go and tell them it was Jesus? I mean, the, the wise men, when Jesus was born, you know, Herod tells them, like, hey, once you find the baby, come back and tell me. I want to come worship him too. Well, they're warned in a dream, and it makes a lot of sense. Like, oh, yeah, that's right. We probably shouldn't go back to Herod, so they don't. And yet this guy goes ahead finds the Pharisees. It doesn't just happen to come upon them. It seems like his unction to testify is almost misplaced, doesn't it? It seems almost unwise. However, he's not rebuked for it, is he? We need to make the main things the main things and the plain things the plain things. And here, this thing is not totally plain. We don't know exactly what his motives were or how he delivered this or how this all happened. We can simply see the simple pattern that has been evident to us for four chapters already. Those who have received mercy become testifiers of that mercy. So should we. We need to be those who carry the mercy of Christ to the lost and to the spiritually invalid, to the multitudes that, again, if they were to come into our building and we'd say, we don't know what to do with them, give them Christ. That is their deepest need. Jesus is the one who is equal with God. He is our motivation. He is our message. He's not just any other guy. He is the one who has entered into Bethesda by the sheep gate. Do you think that was on purpose? Why do the sheep enter through the sheep gate? For sacrifice. 
What is Christ ultimately going to do in Jerusalem? He's going to be arrested. He's going to be accused. He's going to be falsely condemned. And he's going to die on behalf of his people. He's going to be the Lamb of God we read about in chapter 1. So that we could have hope. So that we could see the mercy of Christ. So three questions for you at the end. What is driving hopelessness in your life? And is it truly greater than the hope of mercy that Christ has given you? that is evident in your life? What is driving that hopelessness? Can you pinpoint it? And maybe you say, oh goodness, there is a list. Make the list. Look at it, see it for what it is. It's this health issue. It's this financial issue. It's this relational issue. Write it all down. Consider what is driving hopelessness in your life. And then ask yourself this question. What can you infuse into your life by the power of the Spirit to overcome those hopeless things. Jesus told the man, take up your bed and walk. Do what I've commanded you to do by the power of me commanding you. What can you infuse into your life by the power of his spirit that he's poured out on us, Titus tells us? And then lastly, how are you going to testify to this hope or carry his mercy to others? you got an opportunity today. It might feel awkward might be weird to ask somebody, what do you think about Jesus? Have you ever been to church before? Some of these questions, perhaps some of them are easier to break the ice with than others. Show an interest in people. Maybe ask them this question. What do you want in life? That'd be a weird thing for somebody to ask me that I never met, but I'm sure I'd answer them. Boy, I want things to go well. I want my kids to grow up and do well in school and I want my, my toilet to work at home and you know, like whatever it might be. People will answer those questions. Do what Jesus did. Show the mercy of Christ by asking and, and coming into the life of a person today. You can do that today. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning that you are faithful to pour out your mercy on us afresh again. We have no need to fear anything this world has to throw at us, any even physical ailment, any attack of the enemy. Lord, amazingly and most importantly, we have nothing to fear from our own sin. Our own work against ourselves has been done away with at the cross. Your mercy is great. Your mercy abounds in our lives, and we so often forget it. You come to us and ask a question like, do you want to be healed? Do you want more of me in your life? Do you want everything I have for you? Do you want more mercy? Do you want more grace? Do you want more of my spirit in your life? And we say, yeah, but Lord, you've got to think about where I am. Lord, help us to just simply answer that question. Say, yes, we do want more. We want more of you, Lord. We want more obedience in our life. We want more repentance. We can't come up with it on our own. You have to command it to us. You have to call us, Lord. We thank you that you do indeed call us in your word to turn from sin, turn to Christ, to turn away from idols, to turn away from things that are never going to satisfy us, to put our hope truly in Christ, in life and in death and everything in between. We thank you, Lord, for that great hope. We praise your name for it in Jesus' name. Amen.